Welcome to the Bureau Briefing, a podcast by the Bureau of Digital, an organization devoted to giving digital professionals the support system they never had. Each episode, we're going to talk to a member of our community doing awesome, inspiring things. Now for your host, Carl Smith. Welcome back to the Bureau Briefing. This week, we have got Richard Banfield, the CEO of Fresh Tilled Soil from Boston, and he has recently released a book called Design Leadership. How's it going, Richard? It's going really well. Thank you for having me on the show, Carl. Oh, thank you for being here. Uh, so I read the book uh, a few weeks ago, and I have to say it was—it felt like hanging out with a bunch of friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, kept, I kept reading, and, and that's, that's the way the whole book flowed, actually. It, it just felt kind of like you were sitting around talking about different things. And, and for me, it, it was such a, a quick read, but so valuable. And one of the things I was wondering you know, what gave you the idea that you wanted to, to sit down and write this book about these different types of leaders? There were two things. One is I was very interested in understanding what it meant to be a leader myself. So um, as I've said in the book, the book was a, a curiosity exercise. I was curious about what leadership looked like at businesses like ours and that were similar to the industry that we're in. Um, and so that was the, the major driver behind it. But then when I was introduced to the Bureau and I went to my first owner camp, I was actually sitting there face to face with folks, listening to them tell their stories. And I realized that there is an opportunity to listen in on those stories in a different kind of way. You call people up or, or go and talk to them and actually interview them and ask them what it is to be a leader of a digital design firm. Uh, or a design group in some cases. Um, and that's how it really began. And the, the stories evolved over, I think, about 18 months or so. And that ultimately became the, the basis or the foundation for the book. Well, And so we've met on numerous occasions. I consider you one of my best friends now. I hope that's not a shock to you as I share this with the world. Uh, but, but we've... we've <laughs> just I mean, deleting you off Facebook. Exactly. Uh, oh, it just, just got weird. It just got weird. But... <laughs> You know, that, that is the thing about owner camp is it is those, those conversations and you've, you've been to multiple and, uh, and I think that's a sign that you were getting value out of the relationships, out of the stories. One of the things, when you look at it, it it's, it's obvious that this was called together from a, a lot of different one-on-one -on -one conversations. Mm -hmm. And then when you get into the book and you realize that, you know, it's, it's broken up into, I think eight or nine chapters. How did you determine what those categories were going to be? I mean, you, you talk about culture and leadership styles, planning and, you know, office space and remote working. So was that something you had intentionally you wanted to hit these topics or was it something that just kind of bubbled up? It was fairly intentional, although certain things got more attention than we thought they would get and other things were less topical or interesting than we thought they might be. So we thought that really concrete stuff was going to be the stuff that people want to talk about. They want to talk about finance. They want to talk about sales and marketing. Um, and, in and, and what surprised us was they wanted to talk about people. They wanted to talk about culture. They wanted to talk about how you build teams and the trust that, that is necessary to make those teams work. So a lot of the soft stuff became the things that people were interested in. And I think that's probably congruent with the owner camp experience is that 
you go there and you obviously thinking about some of the financial things you're thinking about how to manage time legal stuff all of the the hard material stuff that that makes a business work but when you get to an owner camp event you end up talking a lot about feelings and you know there's all kinds of jazz hands and things like that it's, <laughs> it's a lot different it's a lot more uh, emotional than you think it's going to be and i think that's the book if you if now that you've read the book you'll you'll bear testimony to that the book is truly about people's lives as individuals running organizations and not just some generic uh, guide to what we think is the best way to run a business. It's not like, well, you should do these things. And if you register your company here and you fill out these forms, then you will have a business and you'll be successful. It's more along the lines of life is pretty tough as an owner of a business. Life is pretty challenging and it's exciting. And there's not a lot of insights out there that can help you make good decisions. And by listening to these anecdotal stories of the, the other leaders, you really get a perspective. And the, the most important perspective is that you realize, oh my God, I'm not alone. I'm not struggling on some lonely desert uh, all by myself, but in fact, that we're all in this together. Absolutely. And it's definitely not a checklist. It's not do these things and you will become a design leader. It's very much, you're going to have to find within yourself the way that you can grow into this leadership type role. And even, even the concept of leadership was something that you talked about quite a bit or that was talked about through the discussions. One of the things that, that came out for me was the idea that as a design leader, your customer is the team, Right? Mm -hmm. it, it's not the in client, although obviously you're going to have to, to think about that. You're going to have to be a part of that. But, but when you start talking about how people are the cornerstone of all organizations and that, you know, if you want a great organization, you're going to need great people. Mm -hmm. What did you find out about finding uh, those people, the way that the different leaders do it and also keeping them engaged? Um, well, like you said, the first thing that, that the leaders come to the awareness of is that they're not serving the external customer, but they're, they're serving the internal customer and that's their team. And that initial mindset changes the way that they spend their time, where they give their attention and what, what the conversation is on a day to day basis. So instead of the conversation being externally focused, it becomes internally focused. How do we make these people successful? What are they, what are they doing every day that makes them as individuals, more excited about what they're doing, more productive. And then that in turn becomes a team thing and that team thing becomes a, a larger thing, uh, a company size thing, and even a community thing in some cases. Um, finding the right talent is going to be slightly different for each company. They have a, you know, there's lots of different stories within the book about how talent is actually acquired, but the, the common thread or the, the pattern that was universal across all organizations was that finding the right talent is probably the most important thing that a leader can do so apart from actually getting business in the door apart from servicing some kind of pipeline of work into the business because that's the reason why a business exists is to, is to work on that stuff their their biggest job is to make a pipeline of talent they should be seeking out their talent on a day-to-day -day basis building up a network of potential team members that either will join them immediately or join them in 
two or three years time, depending on what the timeline looks like. You know, in our experience, we've courted people for years before they've actually joined our team because the really, really, really good people, they're not sitting around at home waiting for you to call them. They're not on job boards saying, you know, I'm exceptional, but I'm on a job board waiting for you to find me. Um, They are gainfully employed and they're probably really happy where they are. So if you're going to find the best talent, you have to be somewhat patient in in your pursuit of that talent and finding them and building relationships with them sometimes takes years or you know maybe not that long but it could take months where you meet somebody you connect with them you say look i know you're really happy where you are but we'd love to have you on the team and they go well yeah you know i'll think about it and then you follow up with them again and again and that that high end talent is part of that pipeline servicing and it looks very similar to sales pipeline as well you make those relationships you hope to connect with those people in a positive way and then you build on that and once you've built on that eventually it should produce some kind of reward at the end but that's that's the the context is that we were surprised to see just how much time and effort these leaders were putting into developing a talent pipeline as much as they would for any other pipeline like a sales or a marketing pipeline you actually start off the book talking about culture and i think that says a lot because culture really is that base when you were out there talking with all of the different leaders, what were some of the insights that you gathered from them about establishing a, a great culture? Um, well, I think I think it was open eye-opening to realize that culture is not something that is entirely controllable. Um, it is very, very, very definitely a product of the personality of the people that founded the company. So if that individual or, or partnership has a type of a style of leadership or a culture within themselves, that's going to inform and influence everybody. It's, it's going to influence how they hire people, what kind of conversations go on at the organization, what policies look like, um, what's tolerated and what's not tolerated. And also that those personalities as they evolve will expect the businesses to evolve with them. So let's say you start a company when you're 26 years, 26 years old, you're single. And the, the reason why you have an, have a business is so that you can work hard and play hard. And part of the culture of the company is on Fridays, you open up the beers and you all have a big party and that's, you know, beer pong and whatnot. 10 years later, you're running the same company, but now you've married, you've got kids, so does everybody else. And having beer pong on a Friday afternoon just doesn't make sense because, well, you've got kids, you've got to go home, you've got to feed them, you've got to pick them up from daycare. Um, Those personalities that are in charge of the organization will expect the business to evolve with them. And so that can either be good, it can either be in evolution in a positive direction, or it might be bad. Maybe they, they, they are taking the organization in a direction that, that is not congruent with what has been created in the past. And that can be disruptive. And we've seen both examples. The book talks a little bit about um, that. And we hear from people who've experienced different things. Um, but I think also understanding that culture is something that you can't control entirely. You, you can set a, a tone. You can bring a style to it. But you've also got to treat it a little bit like a child where it's got to develop its own personality and its own style. And it's not something that you can deliberately enforce. You can't force people to have fun or be a certain way. 
you've just got to set the boundaries for that and let it evolve with with inside you know inside of those boundaries well, yeah, it, it feels like you were following me around while I was running my company because when we first started, it was, well, you I know, was. Engine Fridays. <laughs> there you go, right? It was it was Engine Fridays and, you know, drink beer and all that. Now, what was interesting was I was the one that ended up married and having kids, but the rest of the team was still single. So this was an interesting cultural shift where they were out late on a Thursday night and I was home going, I kind of wish I was out late on a Thursday yeah. night. Yeah. So, but, but this gets to, to another point that there was another topic that was, that was pretty well uh, covered and, and differentiated among the different leaders, which was that idea of personal growth and finding balance. Mm. Because when you are kind of the, the DNA of the culture, you find yourself just overwhelmed with not only trying to keep the lights on, but trying to keep the team engaged in a positive manner one of the things that as I was going through reading it, a lot of the stuff like, you know, the importance of exercise and, you know, ways to keep yourself challenged was stuff that I was like, yes, this makes, you know, absolute sense. What were you surprised about when you were talking about personal growth and finding balance? Like, did you get new ideas for yourself as a leader through these conversations? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I, you know, this is a, I don't. It's not, I would say it's a secret, but it shouldn't be a secret. Um, I think a lot of leaders expect that they should learn best from trial and error. That's almost like a, an unspoken rule. You know, if you're a leader, you need to go out there and earn your status as a leader by making all the mistakes and knocking your head and learning those tough lessons, and so that you can be as well healed as everybody else is. I happen to think that's complete BS. Like I don't buy into that at all. I, I want shortcuts to learning. I want a shortcut to being smarter. And I think the best way to do that is to go and find people who've done it and succeeded at doing it or maybe made the mistakes that you anticipate making and learn from them. Ask them what it is that they did and how they did it and how they overcame it. And of course, there's going to be what I call mental whiplash, which is you're going to get different perspectives from different people. So it's going to you know, shake you around. But within that is going to be lessons for you. And there's going to be learning for you that you can then take and apply to your own life. So again, writing this book out of curiosity was for me, like getting an MBA. I went to all the top folks, learned from their experiences, good and bad, and then took those experiences and applied them to the work that we do and the business that we run and hopefully made something better because of that. So I don't know if it's going to work for every single person. Not every single person needs to go and write a book. But I do recommend that instead of trying to learn all of these lessons in a vacuum, go and ask people. You know, Go to these events. Go to um, the folks that you know who are doing similar things and just ask them. Nine times out of ten, they're going to say, great. I'll, I'll share this with you. There's, unless they're a complete douchebag, they're, they're, they're not, you know, there might be one or two people that say, look, I don't want to share my experiences with you or it's too personal or whatever. That's fine. But you know, for the most part, we're all in this together. So we should be having this conversation out in the open. Well, and it was very handy because in the back of the book, you had a list of complete douchebags in the industry. <laughs> so I was able to mark a few friends right off the list. And, uh, and that was, that was great. 
So I, I couldn't agree with you more about the idea of getting together with other people who have had similar experiences. Maybe they haven't gone through it yet. You know, to be able to share your experiences as someone who's running an organization as well as learn from others. And it's amazing the number of peer networks that are starting to show up. Mm-hmm. And I, I've got a good friend in Canada who runs one. And it was just interesting to hear that it, it is very organic. It is very much the, I didn't know what to do and I wanted to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the interesting things also in the book is going through when you talk about leadership styles and how you know over time you're going to change, you're going, the environment's going to change, you're going to have new challenges. And the, the best leaders is, is kind of what I got out of it and, and not to be prescriptive, but you know they know and they accept that what worked last year may not work tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the other thing is that you have to be in that mode of in the child mind, I think they call it, where you're always learning that what works today may not work tomorrow and you're going to have to change your mind. And that's really, really hard, especially as we get older. You know, we become these um, these habitual animals and we do the things routinely and we like it and it makes sense for us. And then we look over our shoulder and we go, oh, that's not the way things do. You know, that's not the way things happen anymore. Like um, a friend and I were, were bitching about how video conferencing um, just is so complicated. You want to have a video conference with a small group of people. It requires you to download software and, you know, set up this whole thing. And we're saying, why can't it just be easier? And the nine-year-old in the room turned around to us and went, duh, Periscope, you just hit one button. <laughs> and we go, oh, shit, <laughs> we're screwed. Like, you know, we, we just don't notice that these things are solving themselves, that technologies are out there, that, um, that there are better processes, better systems, better ideas. Uh, because our routines, you know, avoid learning new things. So we've got to constantly put ourselves in uncomfortable situations and i i love going to these peer group meetings and meeting with various other you know not just the owner camp stuff but any kind of organization that brings together people who are facing similar kind of problems because they will ask tough questions they will say but why do you do it like that or that worked 10 years ago and it doesn't work anymore why are you still doing that so yeah you're right you you have to have the child mind but you've also got to have this ability to find what works and then kind of stick with that and, and re you know reinsert that good stuff over and over again when necessary. And that's one of the biggest challenges we face running organizations is that we're trying on some level to plan ahead, but at the same time we have to deal with these changes that happen every day. Mm-hmm. And that was definitely also a, a focus in the book was that concept of planning for the future. And you actually say in the book that, uh, long-term planning is not fashionable. And it made me laugh because I would get asked as the head of the company, like, what are the plans for five years? And I would like, they're the same as today. Let's see what we can get done. Mm. And, and, you know, and it's a horrible thing that I said, but it was, it was the truth of how I felt. Mm-hmm. So with the leaders that you talked with, how do they handle that challenge of trying to to get to a different space in the future that they think is better for the culture and the team, but also keep a, a finger on the pulse of what's going on today in terms of those changing technologies. Um, there's, there's actually a really simple way to do it. Uh, it's hard to implement, but it's simple to understand. Um, and that is 
the vision that your company has, the purpose for why you exist should be completely timeless. It should not be connected to any particular technology. Um, and I know I'm going to get some flack for this because there's somebody out there who's in love with WordPress or Drupal or something like that. And they're like, that's what we built our business on. Um, that's great. You know, if you've built your business around a particular technology, then you also need to understand that your business needs to change on a regular basis. You, you are going to have to evolve your business because whatever that technology is, is going to evolve in spite of you and you're going to have to move along with it. So if you're happy to do that, then that's great. Then you can invest time and effort into building a company that is based on a certain technology. But it's my understanding that the best businesses are built around a vision that is not connected to anything fashionable or trendy or, um, or technological, but rather connected to an outcome that is both timeless and also non-technology based. So, you know, you might have a vision that says, you know, we aim to service these kinds of people in this way in order to produce these outcomes and leave out anything related to the technology or the trend. Um, I think if you, and, and let me just put a disclaimer in here, being connected to a particular technology, if you're a product company, makes great sense. I love that. You know, if you're a product company, connect to the technology. If you're a service company and you intend on being around for several decades, that's something you can't do because the technology is really just a, and a multiplier. It's really nothing, nothing to do with the, the core reason you exist. Um, so, so from, from a long-term planning point of view, you should have a vision that is timeless, both, uh, you know, from that perspective, like you, you should work today and it should work in five years time and it should work in 10 years time. Um, but you can also have very tactical things related to what the trends and technologies are, as long as they don't influence your overall vision and the values that your company has. You know, that makes perfect sense. And it, it is one of those things that when we were at our best, we had that clear sense of vision. We had that sense of purpose that we were trying to create things that made other people's lives better. And a lot of them are so generic and, and feel that way. But if you can really live them and talk about them on a, a daily and a weekly basis, if you can look at it and say, does this decision go in the right direction for what we're talking about? The just the, the sense of unity that you can get from the team. And, and <laughs> I, I do have the distinction of being the one person you talked with in the book that you disagreed with. Um, because, you know, I got to a point where I wanted the team to be able to discuss and make decisions. That, that, that word unity always gets me back to, to another section of the book, the biggest mistakes we've made. And I definitely made some big mistakes. But I love that in the book, Your Honesty, where uh, I had shared a story about how we were very Lord of the Flies, like the yeah. team would hire the team and the team would fire the team and all this. And then right after explaining that story, I, I believe you say in the next paragraph, I would not recommend what Carl has done, but I do think it's very interesting. And I was just like, oh, look at that. Uh, <laughs> that I didn't mean to throw you under the bus, but I do know that you also <laughs> learned from that experience. Like you learned that that doesn't always work out. I think that theoretically that makes sense. I think you should let people have a, a say, but ultimately leadership has to make the final decision because they are – relying on your experience and your insights and your knowledge for the best possible outcome. And they may be technically brilliant at what they do. They might be the best designers or best developers or best project managers, but they, they are not necessarily the best business people. 
and they are not the best at leading a company through trying times. So you can listen to them, you can take all of their opinions and can consider them very seriously, and a lot of them will have really great decisions, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to do what they say. Well, if only I had had the book three years ago, Richard. <laughs> That would have helped me so much. So the book, again, is Design Leadership. It's out on the O'Reilly Press. And today we had with us Mr. Richard Banfield, one of my favorite people. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today on the Bureau Briefing. Thank you for inviting me. And everyone else, check back next week, and we'll have another great topic for you. We'll see you then.